Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Karen Stefano, author of the short story collection, The Secret Games of Words. And I'm delighted to have with me today, Julia Dixon Evans, author of the novel, How to Set Yourself on Fire. Julia, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Karen. It's my pleasure. Um, you've been busy, I've seen on social media. Yeah, I've been touring a little bit. Yeah, and I heard you had the good fortune to be a house guest of Bud Smith's. Yes, I did. It was <laughs> wonderful. I'll bet um, he and Ray are two fabulous people. He's been on this podcast before, and he's he's just such a wonderful person. They both are. They are. That was great. That was such a delight to see them both. And yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, well, let me let me jump in. I've got a lot of questions about this novel, and I'd like to start out though by having you tell our listeners a little bit of what the book is about, so that they have a little bit of a contextual setting for some of the questions I'm going to dive into. Sure. The book is about this woman called Sheila. She's in her mid-30s and is kind of a mess. She doesn't sleep very well. She doesn't work very well. She doesn't keep friends. She doesn't have the strongest relationship with her mother. And um, she sort of exists in these weird thieveries of time and objects and and um, intimacies in a way where um, when her grandmother dies, she discovers these letters that somebody had sent to her grandmother, somebody who wasn't her grandfather. And um, she becomes super obsessed with the letters, trying to figure out what they mean, who they, who are they're from and what her grandmother might have written in response. So it's like, she is on this quest to find the other half of the letters. And along the way, she develops this friendship with her neighbor's 12-year-old daughter, which to me is like, the, that was the heart of the book, was the relationship between Sheila and this 12-year-old girl, Tori, as they are very different people. And of course, the age difference, but then they try to navigate this mystery together. Yeah, I thought I thought it was very interesting and very unique in terms of a storyline to have a book. Uh, I mean, it's about a, it's about a lot of things um, and mm -hmm. there are very interesting characters in the book. But to have a, the book about a relationship between this, you know, this mess of a woman in her 30s and a 12 year old girl being at the heart of the story. Uh, I thought that was beautiful. And I don't I don't know that I've ever read a story like that before. Have you? I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think of is like Matilda, where um, Roald, the Roald Dahl book, where the, she's a much younger girl, develops this friendship with her teacher. But it's more of like a savior, a clear like um, mother substitute character where um, Tori isn't necessarily in need of a substitute anything. They just sort of are there for each other in this um, way that's unique to who they are. Would you do us a favor and read to us a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm going give, to... Yeah. Okay, you're going to give us a little setup, right? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm going to start reading at chapter three. So what we need to know is that um, the opening of the book starts right in this very San Diego, California moment where there's a wildfire going on. It's hot. She is living in this old, old for San Diego standards, suburban, tiny bungalow court dwelling. And um, she can overhear her neighbor, Vinny. She can overhear his Skype calls with his daughter across the country because he lives right close to her in this close proximity, kind of a slumlord situation um, dwelling. And um, Sheila finds out that her grandmother dies right away at the start of the story. And before her grandmother dies, she's holding the shoebox and she suggests that she wants to give it to Sheila and then says, I'll give it to you tomorrow. But then of course she dies overnight and Sheila never gets the shoebox until she breaks into her mother's house and steals it and doesn't tell her mother that she did that. So here we are with the purloined shoebox and this is the start of chapter three. When I finally opened the shoebox, PBS is still on, but it's the weird late night stuff. Vinny is sitting in the shared courtyard, smoking and playing phone Tetris with the sound on. I breathe deeply, his expunged smoke satisfying the nicotine addiction I never properly kicked. I consider Vinny's hygiene, the way he dresses, the way he doesn't seem to take care of himself, the way his hands look so worn, so used. I breathe deep again. My fingertips twitch to hold something, to fidget with a cigarette. I rub the edges of the shoebox lid, its cardboard softened with age, more cloth than paper. And I think about my grandmother's skin, how it didn't look soft. She looked hardened, wooden, etched. I lift the lid. It's letters. The shoebox is full of letters, more than I can even begin to estimate. Small ones, the personal envelope size that nobody uses anymore. Only one of them has a stamp and a postmark. The stamp is unfamiliar. The postmark is faded, but still clear. San Diego, May 13th, 1950. The address is in cursive. I've forgotten how to write in cursive. I've forgotten how to write letters to anyone. The day is long gone since the carefully folded notes in fourth grade, since I could keep a friend long enough to compose and fold a note. This letter doesn't have a name, just an address. My grandmother's address, the house she moved into as a 19-year-old newlywed, the house she lived in until a few short months ago, when her illness and my mother's unwillingness to handle it justified live-in care. The return address on the back flap doesn't have a name. I feel no remorse, no invasion of privacy when I open it. I feel mostly blank, with just a thin layer of excitement. I have no idea what to expect, but for a split second I catch myself imagining evidence of some great fortune or royalty. I laugh, just one huff of an exhale through my nose because it's about as likely as anything else. Dear Mrs. Baker, I am writing with great regret to inform you that your young daughter's doll, which is quite large and realistic and therefore worrisome at first, has met its demise at the mouth of my terrier. I believe it was thrown into my backyard on Thursday the 10th as our gardens back up against a shared fence. I do not believe it is in anyone's best interest to return the doll to you or your daughter. It is a morbid scene. There is no longer a head. 
Please allow me to purchase a new doll for your daughter. If you would kindly inform me of where the doll was purchased, I can rectify the situation immediately. I will not rest until an intact doll is returned to your young child, so please do not protest. Please reply immediately, either by post or visit around the block. Otherwise, I shall be required to continue sending letters or trying to reach you until I can remedy this. Sincerely and regretfully, Mr. Harold C. Carr. Oh, I love it. I love hearing you you read it um, because reading it myself, I, I chuckled, but uh, hearing <laughs> you read uh, Harold Carr's letter, his sense of humor um, uh, is, is pretty spectacular. He's um, a bit ridiculous. <laughs> was, yeah. Yeah. It was um, a lot of fun to be inside. Of his sure. Head. I, I, I can imagine. Let me, uh, talk to you first though, about Vinny in the acknowledgements of at the end of the book, you give thanks for the writing prompt that birthed the character Vinny. And so I've been dying to ask you, if you remember, what was that prompt? Um, the, it was like this makeshift writing group, a bunch of friends and I had. And I think it was more, it was a lot like a book club that doesn't really do much, where <laughs> we would get together and we would hang out and drink and um, like an hour into the session, we'd be like, so did anyone do the writing? <laughs> did anyone do the work? But um, we did have some amazing prompts. And one of them, this was Rory Kelly's prompt, uh, was like, write a character, write a cliche character, but like, build it up. I think the the, the phrase was from cliche to character. Mm. And so I, I started writing the short story about a slovenly man with a weird job and um, like a just kind of made him more fascinating. And it was really easy to do, I think, with Vinny because he's really so much more than just kind of like a schlubby neighbor in the story. But um, it was pretty early on, like the first couple of pages of that story, I was like, okay, I'm more interested in what other people think of him. I'm more interested in like this neighbor. And so I switch gears and started writing more from Sheila's perspective and that became something bigger than a short story. So, so did you ever finish the short story or did the short story that, that started as a short story become this novel? It, right. It just didn't go anywhere as a short story. Yeah. I didn't finish it. Just turned yeah. it straight into a novel. I love that prompt from cliche to character. That's a great one. Yeah. So are, are prompts an effective tool for you in general? Uh, yes and no. And as like a writing instructor, coming up with a prompt is probably the hardest part. Um, because I, I feel like writing process for anyone is, is different person to person. And also day to day, project to project. What works for me one minute is maybe not going to work for me tomorrow. And I feel like giving this blanket prompt to a class or to a writing group is really, you kind of like hold your breath. You're like, I'm sorry if this crushes anyone's creativity. <laughs> Here is the prompt. <laughs> but um, I think in general themes or, um, hey, like if a, a lit mag is putting out a themed issue and say, hey, we're looking for um, stories about cleanliness. That was like a paper darts 
um, a literary magazine called Paper Darts that was there a flash fiction prompt once about cleanliness. And I was like, oh my God, that would be really great to write for. But then I didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, it's not always a happy ending with a good prompt, but um, yeah, they're, they're hit or miss. Yeah. And, um, but I have to say, like, I've written a lot of stories that way, um, external prompts or um, suggestions from other people. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny for me, they're completely hit or miss. And it, because sometimes, you know, it'll be a pretty broad prompt that could go yeah. anywhere if you're in the right place. And I'll just be like, oh, I got nothing. And uh, <laughs> other times that uh, I, I can run with it. And I like that you had an informal little writing group. I had, I had one of those um, with uh, my dear friends, um, uh, these the, these are people, by the way, uh, through whom I I met Bud Smith and Ray, um, Len Koontz, Robert Vaughn, and mm -hmm. Meg Tewitt. And we, for a year, literally a year, we, every week, we took turns giving the prompt, mm -hmm. and then we'd write whatever we, we wrote, and it was mostly flash, yeah. And, uh, and then circulated it and gave each other notes eat the following week. And it was it was amazing. And sometimes we would all just crash and burn. And <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes we got some, we got some great we got some great stuff out of it. And it was so easy. Um, I was actually just talking to Len on the phone today and we're thinking about doing it again. And because it's just I don't know, working with other people. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but it helps get me out of my own head and it helps with kind of the loneliness uh, of writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, you have this ultimate goal of, of a readership when you're done with something, but I'm really motivated just like word by word thinking about the very localized group or individual that is going to get this story first and that's like I'm motivated by that by thinking mm -hmm. about them reading it for the first time and um and just like providing something for a writing writing partner or a small group is totally motivating and you know that they're going to be really supportive right Right. Supportive and yet not blowing smoke up your ass either. Exactly. Uh, appropriately, exactly. appropriately critical as the, <laughs> as the case may be. I mean, sometimes, uh, again, we were, we're dear friends, so we could be brutally, <clears throat> excuse me, brutally honest. And sometimes the, mm -hmm. the emails were, I have no idea what you're trying to get at here. <laughs> <laughs> and that, but it was helpful. And uh, yeah. it, it's, it's helpful to have a safe place where you can be, where you can be brutally honest. Uh, but, but I digress. And mm -hmm. um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about Sheila. You, mm -hmm. you gave a, a good and interesting description of her as a character using words like a mess and obsessed. <laughs> and uh, to, to me as a reader, I, I, I saw that. I also saw voyeur, mm -hmm. smart ass, uh, really a keen observer, uh, a very bright woman, 
lonely, depressed, insomniac with abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. And I mean, would you, do you agree with, with my take as a reader and tell me more about who she is to you as her creator? Yeah. I, I mean, I love that abandonment issues part. I think that's sort of one of those things that I wrote and I edited with my editor without necessarily naming it like that, without, um, putting it into such a fine point, but that's totally it. You can see it in the way she um, talks about writing notes in fourth grade and how she can like she never could keep friends around. She was always on this verge of abandonment and fueled by like the main abandonment of her father. So yeah, it's definitely a voyeur, keen observer. Those are great. I love those. Um, to me, I think she was like, the, the worst of me, um, the places where I'm like almost right there. But, um, and I see it almost as like human nature in some very unique, specific ways will go there. We'll go to like obsession, voyeurism. Um, uh, it's very, she lives a very self-centered life in that way. And we just kind of know not to act like her as functioning adults. Most of and, us. <laughs> yes, most of us. That's true. <laughs> and a lot of times I would think, okay, here's a situation. Um, how would I handle this because I have decorum and I know what will be a successful outcome? Or how would I handle it if I were to like really give in to the depression or like think about how I would act if I hadn't slept very well in a year. And, um, and I would, that's kind of how I would make these little choices for her as a character was think about me at my worst or an individual at their worst. And, um, I also think that comes back around to being somebody at their best because she is not afraid to say the most honest thing. So, yeah. So Sheila, her sleep patterns are an absolute disaster and that's something that you know i i not always but um but I, but i can identify with i think so many people can identify with and you write about her sleeplessness and her terrible sleep patterns with so much detail and clarity that it made me think you had some experience with this yourself. Is that, <laughs> is that true? Or, and if not, can you share with us where all this detail comes from? Yeah. Um, I definitely struggle with insomnia and sleeplessness and also having children, the early years with children, it's like sleep deprivation is the name of the game there with babies. And, um, so even if it weren't like a clinical thing that I deal with every so often, it's like I had that moment, that chapter in my life of mothering babies through the night. Um, but I will say I was mostly inspired to write a character with um, insomnia and with, uh, with sleeplessness based on seeing The Babadook, which is a horror movie that I thought was brilliant. And it was this mother who... Um, a single mother raising a young boy and um, completely tortured by insomnia. And 
I just thought, found that really beautiful and incredibly relatable <laughs> to see like the true horror is on the inside of a sleepless mind. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> absolutely true. Um, you know, knock on wood, but I, I think I kind of have a, a, a system down to deal with it, but sometimes <laughs> it still hits me. And I talk about not being your best self. I just, I feel useless mm -hmm. and crazy. And especially as a writer, you know, like if you're going to your day job and you have a structure mm -hmm. and you have to respond to people or clients or customers or whatever your job is, it's, it's not fun, but at least like you make it through the day. And if, you know, if you've had a, uh, a sleepless night as a writer, your writing day the next day is just for shit and right so it's it's oh it's a it's a terrible terrible spiral but mm -hmm. um but I don't know it, again it's just it, sleep patterns and uh whether people are good sleepers or bad sleepers it's it's just one of those things I'm I'm fascinated with and and that was one of the things that was one of the many things about Sheila that was so interesting to me and another thing uh, that interested me about Sheila is her ability to lie and particularly <laughs> to her mother. I mean, she lies a lot and with great ease. <laughs> and what was the inspiration for that? And, and why did you make that one of Sheila's key characteristics? I'm not entirely sure of the why for that. It's more just I saw it as being one of those like crossroads, uh, uh, like a decision I would make as um, a scene was unfolding. It would be like, what is the most Sheila thing to do here? And I think in that way, I like formed the Sheila, formed her by um, <laughs> by like a series of choose your own adventure crossroads for yeah. divorce decisions. But I think mother-daughter relationships are so fascinating to me, and I have a great one. And um, so I'm not entirely sure where it comes, where my fascination comes from, but I really, you see a lot of of um, like the quiet ways that a mother and a daughter dismantle each other, and um, I. When I read this, my own daughter was in preschool. Like I was hardly struggling with, with how to parent a, a real, <laughs> real actual woman, like the the human brain of a of a girl child. But like now that she's older, and I'm still talking a lot about this book, it's like <laughs> I'm seeing this with my own daughter, who is uh, almost nine. I'm like, oh my God, here is this relationship. <laughs> it's right here. I wrote this. It's happening. But um, I, I really do think that it's it's one of those ways where you don't intend to harm, but you're powerless against it. You don't intend to ruin a relationship. You just kind of um, want to stand your ground or just kind of be independent or or be separate from your mother or be separate from your daughter or exert a power. And I, I think that there's something there in the lies, the way she lies. One of my favorite lines in the book is when um, she 
first is meeting Tori and is describing what happened with the grandma and the letters. And Tori says, oh, I bet you could tell a really good lie (laughs) in like this marveling tone. And it's this moment where it's like, wait, yeah, that's an insult. But yeah, it can. Yeah, oh, it's funny. And and Tori is such an interesting character, too. And um, uh, my boyfriend has, they're, they're teenagers now, but mm-hmm. um, when we first started dating, I think the youngest, uh, the youngest are twins, and they were 11. And I mean, they just call you out with stuff like that. I bet you could, I bet you could tell a really great lie. And it's, it's just, it's, it's terrifying. And Mm -hmm. I, I'm a person who hasn't, I don't have kids of my own and I've, uh, I really had uh, shockingly little experience with kids in my life. And uh, so, so Tori, I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean, she's so smart and so, expressive and so willing to be honest herself, don't you think? Mm-hmm. She really is. And I I had a lot of, um, not a lot, I would say like early readers of this book cautioned me being like, she is a little bit too good. She's too smart or too wholesome. And I was like, no, I know children like this. I know, and this is how I was as a 12 year old also. And I remember that vividly. And I, I just, I kind of knew enough, especially that preteen girl right on the cusp. I knew enough kids like that to where I felt like I had permission to write a character like her who was so good. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And I don't know. I didn't, as a reader, I, she didn't strike me as too good, like, like boring cardboard. Mm. I mean, because she's, she's fragile in her own ways and, uh, damaged Mm -hmm. a a little bit. And so I I don't know, I thought, I thought you nailed it. Um, Oh, thank you. (laughs) But, um, back to the mother daughter conflict, uh, that, yes, that's definitely one of the currents that runs through this novel and that mother-daughter conflict is absolutely one of my favorite themes, both to write about and to read about. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious, if, like, do you read a lot of mother-daughter conflict stories or books? And which ones have you read that you've loved? Hmm. I think that, I mean, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind as a movie is Lady Bird recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my favorite short fiction like Laura Vandenberg a lot of her short fiction has these like pivotal mother-daughter relationships as like the circumstance that is the the fabric of the whole story um and her novel Find Me is also a really good example of a of a story that is propelled by this mother-daughter relationship without necessarily having it be in the book entirely um, it's a, it's like a quest to find her mother. I feel like when I write a daughter relationship, I'm thinking about Shirley Jackson in my head mm-hmm. and I'm struggling. I've, I think mostly they're like sisters, but Haunting of Hill House, I think has a really good backdrop of a weird, toxic mother daughter relationship. And, um, a lot of things always have like a really extreme thing, like white oleander. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Matilda, like I mentioned earlier, the mother-daughter relationship is terrifying. There's often like a really extreme situation. Uh, so it's, it's always fascinating to me. Yeah. Janet Fitch, uh, White Oleander, that's one of my all-time favorites. And yes, kind of an extreme <laughs> setting. And uh, I always like the I don't know if you've ever read Amy Tan's stories or, or novels, uh, but she does she does a great job with sort of the sort of subtleties of of mother mother daughter conflict and you know yeah. the, the nuances and uh, there there are so many so many and Lady Bird uh, was was fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, you chose to structure your novel around Harold's letters and letters in general, and it's a choice. Um, and I, I was just wondering why you made that structural choice. And I also wanted to know how you made it work on the page because you, as, as the ex- excerpt that you read from, you're going from Sheila and the scene uh, that Sheila is in to Sheila emerging herself in these letters and mm-hmm. you made it work. And I was just, uh, what, what was the trick to that? Well, um, I think a, a big part of that trick, I'll get back to like the impetus for it. But a big part of that trick was that I, I wrote in, um, I wrote them all out, the letters, and I didn't start doing it that way. I would just write like the first letter and then the second letter as it, as it came up in the text of Sheila's story. And um, eventually I got to this point where I'm like, I need to, I need to think of these as their own individual source, their, their own individual like entity and um I don't think I wrote all like 300 something, but I, I wrote many, uh, like at least a sampling from the entire year or so that Harold was writing letters to Rosamond. And um, I kept those in like a, in a separate folder and um, kind of, that was like the most outlining I did of those letters, mm-hmm. but they came up sort of out of order. And I think that is, that was, um, exciting to me in making the structure work. I think it, I could have felt a little, uh, formulaic about it otherwise. So, um, they didn't necessarily come up in the chronological procession, procession of the novel in order of in chronological order of the letters like they would come up when Tori and Sheila were talking about the time when he like downward spirals so I would include one of those letters there and then later on towards the end of the book or something like that so um I think to making it work structurally for me was to kind of try to push boundaries and push the formula a little bit so that um, it seemed more organic with how somebody who, like Sheila, is obsessed with them and has read all of them and knew them inside and out by um, partway through her story, um, just kind of thinking about how she 
would approach them and they would come up at random to her. So that's how they're included. And I think I also had like Harold's voice is entirely different from Sheila's. Yeah. You know, you, you have this like man from the fifties who is a hopeless romantic and, um, dashing and polite. And then you have Sheila who's not any of those things. And so I would have to like crack my knuckles and, and like take a walking break and put on a different playlist before, um, before doing some Herald writing just to get in the zone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, and I guess, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's part of how you made it work was just the complete and utter contrast between Mm -hmm. these voices and, and what's going on in these characters. Yeah. And I definitely thought of them as their own like living separate documents, their own separate stories. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, I would try to think of it in terms of it's a flashback or, um, here we are in this like parallel world. Like if this were made into a movie, they would be, um, you know, be like a totally different world. It would be, um, a scene from the past and you would see it unfolding. So I tried to, I tried to let those unfold in, at least in my notes, um, so that I had that fullness to it. But I, um, and I think I was really driven by it not being full. It, um, only being half of this archive that Sheila has access to. So with, for every letter, there is a response out there somewhere and she doesn't have it. She only had, she doesn't know what her grandmother said in response. And so that to me was like this big driving force to telling this story, mm-hmm. this idea of, um, you know, I have like a box of letters from college boyfriends and what have you. And it's like, I don't, I read them and I am like, Oh, this is lovely. I don't remember being this present in mind when I was in the <laughs> Like <laughs> I don't remember any of this really. And I wonder what I wrote in response and you can see like answers to questions in there. So I know I wrote something, but I could not tell you what it was. And we don't really have that luxury anymore. Like Gmail sorts everything in a conversation. Like you can always see what you have said Uh in um, emails or text messages. Like you go to text somebody you haven't talked to in a long time and you bring up their number and texting and you can see the two years ago what you wrote to them. And it's all right there at our fingertips. So it's like this idea of having only half of an archive of someone's conversation is obsolete. Like we don't get that anymore. Right. Unless people are sending letters still, which good for them. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, I recently, uh, dug up, I don't know. I can't remember what I was looking for, but I went through one of my boxes of photos and memorabilia and I ran across, uh, letters from, my college roommate the summer after our freshman year. And Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, it was just precious. Uh, It's, Mm -hmm. that's been a while ago. Uh, So (laughs) there was a lot of stuff that, you know, she was talking about guys she was going out with and this and that uh, over the summer. And I had no idea who these people were. And I (laughs) I sent them to her 
And she loved them because it was like, it was like a journal excerpt of herself, of her uh, post-freshman year self. And, and that's kind of a precious thing, but then she couldn't, she couldn't remember who she was talking about either. So uh, (laughs) yeah, it's a very, uh, you know, it's very different with the technology that we have today. Um, But we're, we're running out of time here, so we need to wrap this up. But before we go, I wanted to ask you one more question. Your The title of your novel, How to Set Yourself on Fire, is so perfect. And titles are hard for me. Oh I, gosh, I, yeah. I, have, I have the hardest time. And, and how did you come up with this one? Well, uh, it was really hard. <laughs> and... Um, it was maybe the third title since uh, like signing a publishing contract that we ended up with. And I had no title for it as I was writing. Like my file name was Sheila. That was all I had. And I almost did send it off to query agents with it being titled Sheila, but ended up going with like a partial phrase, other burning places that was in, um, it was when Sheila was talking about perhaps her dad is like pulling other women out of other burning places and um he has his whole other life without her and I love that title and I didn't love it at the same time and eventually as we were um closing in on that like editorial um phase with Dezenk books they were like we we got to change the title we need something that's more evocative and also the word other is like um poetry collection, short story collection. So it, it kind of throws people off. So let's come up with something else. And I'm like, that's all I have. <laughs> I, I cannot come up with another title. It's always the hardest thing for me, I think, because I'm really snobby about titles. Like, I love a good title. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, it was so daunting to try and come up with another. And we cycled through a few more. Like, if you Google... Um, publications that I had in that year where I was listing my forthcoming novel title in my bio there's like three different versions that are in there but we landed on this and it was like in like a a three-person gmail conversation with my editor and my agent and and um weeks it took us weeks of back and forth to finally find something and um this was it how to set yourself on fire we sort of like worried that it would be a little bit too um does it sound like a self-help book and um we'd propose like how to set your world on fire or your life I think it was your life on fire but that one felt a little bit mm, too um almost like religious mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to get put in the wrong bookshelf so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow well I love I'm I thank you for sharing that with me because I feel your pain. Um, <laughs> it's 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 not an easy thing to do, but you guys you guys nailed it. So, um, Julia, thank you so much for joining me. I loved this book. Everyone who's listening, uh, grab your copy of How to Set Yourself on Fire by Julia Dixon Evans. And Julia, where can people buy the book? Um, it's online. You can get it from the publisher, from uh, IndieBound, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and um, at indie bookstores as well around the country. I know in San Diego they have it at Book Catapult in South Park, and um, 
Mysterious Galaxy should have a few copies too. I love both those stores. Those are two great independent bookstores. Um, mm-hmm. Book Catapult has some great events, as does Mysterious Galaxy. So um, again, Julia, thank you so much. And everybody, uh, Julia Dixon Evans, How to Set Yourself on Fire. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate it.